Hello, everyone. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and today I have an episode that will be on two podcasts, Mystifyingly Missing and Danger on Delmarva. I originally started Danger on Delmarva to learn more about events that shaped my home region and how we could learn from these tragedies of the past. I began to think about starting Mystifyingly Missing around two to three months ago, and on that podcast, I look at disappearances, solved and unsolved, and as with Danger on Delmarva, I want to see what we can learn from these events. In cases where this may apply, I will also take a look at the media and see how they may have impacted the case, good or bad, and also try to explore why some cases receive the huge headlines and continuous coverage, while many fall into the realm of the forgotten. They may only be remembered by family, friends, and maybe an occasional local who will maybe remember something about someone going missing years ago. Why are some cases treated differently than others? And what do we do about making sure that a missing person's picture, name, and other identifying features are distributed equitably? Now, in this podcast or any episode that I do, this is where I would usually start to give a long disclaimer, but I'm going to try to condense that today to just say that I have taken all of the information from publicly available sources. All of the sources will be listed in the description of the podcast notes. I do also upload the audio to YouTube. Now, because of some restrictions that they may have, I may need to use abbreviations or just part of the criminal charge to convey the meaning just to make sure that nothing is blocked on any of the media that I upload this to. Also, in this case, I will try to use the offender's name as little as possible. Many times the offender is the one who receives most of the attention, but I want this person's story to be told. The victim who, as I said, this case is solved, so we'll know what happened to her. And I think her name needs to be said more than his. So I do also need to say and to stress a lot that this episode can be triggering on a number of different reasons. The subject matter itself can trigger thoughts about assaulting, especially in this case, a child. And some of the, the acts committed are extremely vile. I will only describe what is absolutely necessary to show what this person did to an innocent victim. Now, this episode will be very long, so what I'm doing is I'm going to split it in at least two sections, one that details the events and the other that really details the aftermath, um, the legacy or the legislation, things that occurred as a result of this crime. So again, just to emphasize, some of the imagery that can be you know, denoted in the wording that I use can be graphic and very disturbing. So with that, let's get on to the case. I remember watching the TV on Christmas Day and watching as information came through that this little bright-eyed blonde-haired girl was missing. 
Her smile reached her eyes, and it portrayed the innocence and vibrancy of youth. Then later that same day, more news came through that a body had been found. The hoped-for Christmas miracle was now lost. My son was celebrating his second Christmas, though just over one year old. And while the description may have brought to mind a Christmas day where a little girl named JonBenet Ramsey was taken, only to be found later that day in her family home, I'm talking about Sarah Foxwell, a little girl who went missing just before Christmas from Wicomico County, Maryland, just shy of the Delaware state line. It's definitely understandable if your first thought was of JonBenet Ramsey, if you're old enough to remember that day, which I am. But knowing that a little girl was missing so close to my home that her family and little sister were hoping against hope that she was found and to have that pain so close just brought me to tears. It could have also been that I was a new mother. Now I had this whole new depth of emotion that I'd never felt before. I could not imagine my child being missing. And then I thought of the holidays for this family for the rest of their lives. At that time of year, they would be bombarded with images of happy families, holiday decorations that they could not hide from. So every year, the holidays could be even more painful. Now, young Sarah Foxwell was surrounded by love. She had nine siblings, a mother, an aunt, grandfather, and so many others around her that cherished her. At the time of her disappearance, she was 11 years old and had been living with her aunt, Amy Fothergill, who was her legal guardian and maternal grandfather at a converted barn house. Jennifer was a single mother with nine children, and she knew that she needed help caring for them. She then had asked her sister to take care of two of her children. But Jennifer wanted to make sure that they got the best Christmas present she could provide, and she'd been working overtime to try to achieve this. Looking at Sarah's picture now, her smile seems haunting in the one that was used during the search and that covered the front of every newspaper in the area that continually flashed across the TV screen. To me now, it looks like the smile did not meet her eyes as compared to before I knew what would happen. Now, Sarah was known as someone who cared deeply about her siblings. She was described by her mother, Jennifer, as the referee, a loner, and the hugger, the one that always had a smile. She was about the middle of the family, and you know, being in the middle and being the one that her mother described as holding the family together, that's just not something that I, as a youngest sibling, would be able to do. So it, so it shows the strength that Sarah had. Now, Sarah shared her room with her younger sister, Emma, who was six. The room was situated at the end of a hallway close to the back door. Going to bed on Tuesday night, December 22nd of 2009, the children were excited as it had snowed outside, and because the temperatures were supposed to stay cold, a white Christmas seemed that it would be in the works. Now, on the lower part of the eastern shore, and usually on the upper part as well, to see any significant snow was not incredibly common. And to actually have grow, 
snow on the ground at Christmas time would seem almost magical to the children living here. I can only imagine how the little girls must have giggled, all snug in their Christmas pajamas, whispering about their time off from school, what plans they had for winter break. I can almost see them in their room, thinking about if there was any place to go sledding, even though snow would be on the ground, the ground around here tends to be pretty flat. They may have been thinking of building a snowman on Christmas morning or making snow angels, but these innocent little girls had no way of knowing that before the next morning even came, an event so vile would happen that no one even really wants to say the words, much less realize that it involved a child. I had watched the news about this case, but I don't remember seeing the same details that I've read about while researching this. I can't say if that's because these facts were just never presented on television or if I had just blocked them out. Amy awoke the morning of Wednesday, December 23rd, and could not find Sarah. She may not have panicked at first, as it was possible Sarah was just getting something to drink or was in the bathroom, but she was not in her bed. Quickly, though, Amy knew something was wrong. Jennifer, Sarah's mother, received a call from her sister saying that she could not find Sarah, that she had searched everywhere but just could not find her. A missing persons report was filed quickly. Though I could not find any information specifically on Sarah's father, it did seem like she at least knew his whereabouts or knew of him as a paternal aunt was interviewed at some point in time. And Mike Lewis, who was the sheriff, said that they knew rather quickly that this was not a case of parental kidnapping. Now, as to why this conclusion was reached so quickly and decisively was because of one thing, or one person, I should say, little six-year-old Emma. Emma let her family know that she was awoken in the middle of the night. She had pretended to be asleep. I don't know if she did this because she instinctively knew something was wrong, or if she didn't want to get in trouble for not being asleep since she had known the man, Mr. Tommy. Emma told her family and investigators that Mr. Tommy had taken Sarah. Amy, who had dated Mr. Tommy briefly, but who reportedly had not seen him for at least a month, realized that he knew where they kept an extra spare key in the garden. It would also make sense as the family dog had not barked and it wouldn't have because it knew Mr. Tommy. Now, for the timeline of events prior to Sarah going missing, I'm going to rely heavily on information from a Baltimore Sun article. As with all my sources, I will link the article in the notes. Now, I didn't find too much information on her early life, but the first time that Thomas Leggs Jr. had been convicted of a sex crime was before Sarah was even born. 1997. At the age of 18, he was working at a local school's haunted forest. This role would allow him to hide and jump out at people. And through this event, he met three 11 and 12 year olds who had advised them of their age. 
He befriended them, and even though he was six to seven years older than them, he acted in a friendly, outgoing manner and engaged the young girls for the evening. At one point, he took a shy 12-year-old away from her friend and touched her. After this violation, the offender had the gall to contact the girl and want to meet with her again. She, of course, did not want to meet with him. Her parents did read her diary, and while some people may think that this is a breach of trust, her parents did what they thought was best for their child, and in the process did find out that their daughter had been writing about her assault. They contacted the police. Now, he did not deny the claims. Now, his next quote is one of the most despicable things I have ever heard. And he, throughout um, some of the articles I've read, he has said things that were very similar or things just as equally as vile, but this is the only one I'm going to repeat just so you get an idea of what his mindset was. So in response to the young girl's claims, which he did admit to, he said, she wasn't acting like she wasn't enjoying it. So in even another show of hubris or complete disrespect, or both, he wrote to the parents and just to paraphrase the whole letter, said that he didn't know the children's ages and if he had, he wouldn't have done it. A, they said that they told him, B, they're 12, 11 and 12. It's very obvious that they are younger. In May of 1998, a plea deal was struck in this case that allowed him to plead to third-degree sexual assault, receiving a five-year sentence. And going forward, I will refer to that as SA, as an abbreviation. However, of that sentence, four and a half years was suspended, leaving him only to serve six months. But because of good behavior, he got out in only about four about a year after his release, 12-year-old Caitlin Alley and some of her friends were in a mall in Salisbury, Maryland. At the time, the offender was 20 years old, so if he had actually served more of his sentence regarding the 12-year-old, he would not have been out at this time. Later, after the events of this Christmas, when Caitlin saw the story about Sarah, she said that when she saw the picture, her heart went right to her feet and that she felt like she had been punched in the stomach. So more about her and her friend's story is that while at the mall, the offender used flattery to engage them, but when he said he wanted to take them on a wild ride, the teens knew that this just was not right. His actions seemed reminiscent of either his inability to recognize or his refusal to do so that his actions were wrong. Just as with his first victim, he was very vigilant about trying to contact the girls. 
He followed them around the mall, and later, Caitlin and her friend were having a small sleepover, and he actually found their house and climbed up to the bedroom window and banged on it. Caitlin's friend threatened to call the police, so he left. Now, her friend was afraid to tell her parents, thinking that she would get in trouble. And I think this is really sad that you know, she would think that because she and Caitlin were actually the ones that were being victimized in this case. So they didn't say anything, but a school counselor did notice a change in their behaviors and actions. And as a result, she spoke with them and they told her what had happened. And the counselor then reported the incident to the police. And I just do have to say, this counselor was awesome. The fact that, you know, there's a lot of children in a high school or middle school. Um, it doesn't say exactly which school they were in. But the fact that a counselor knows the students well enough to know that something is just not right and take the appropriate actions. You know, I just think that's amazing that she or he knew the students that well. So when the offender was questioned about this, all he said was that he touched a girl on her behind and he was just joking, which, you know, anytime someone would touch a teenager on the behind is not joking. So to 2000, and at this time, the case with Caitlin is, you know, still kind of going on. Um, it hasn't been, you know, finalized yet. So in 2000, he was charged with 18 offenses in relation to the mall incident. But skip forward a little while in June, while he was waiting for the trial, he went to a beach town that's not far from the Maryland border. He approached a girl on the boardwalk in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Um, she was 16 years old, and she was out trying to find her sister. Now, you know, as with everyone else that we've discussed at this point, he tried to engage her, he walked with her, and was doing what was described as slap boxing. He propositioned her, and when she refused his advances, he did walk away. But a little while later, she saw him buy a soda machine. And she did actually talk to him again. And though, you know, none of us were there, I would have to think she, she was thinking along the lines of, okay, well, I told him no earlier and he walked away. Everything is fine. But it wasn't. And he forced himself on her. Now, as with the other survivors that have come forward in this case, you know, she was very brave to do so. Police found two sets of footprints around the area that she had described, and witnesses did state that they saw him staring at her. Now, he was accused of second-degree SA, and this triggered a violation of his probation. Now, to kind of backtrack a little bit, because we have two things going on simultaneously, he's waiting for everything to finalize with the incident with Caitlin and her friend. 
Now, because of the violation of probation that Delaware could see, they sent him back to Wicomico County, um, which is in Maryland. And in Wicomico, he stayed there um, until early 2001. But for Caitlin's case, he was convicted of only one of the 18 charges that were brought against him. And his subsequent sentencing for that, he was sentenced to five years as well as the remainder of the four-and-a-half-year sentence that he had received for the Haunted Forest case. Now, in, again, in 2001, he was sent back to Delaware um, to finalize any sentencing or pleas that were being made for the case in Rehoboth, Delaware. So he ended up pleading guilty to fourth degree SA. Now asked when, or I'm sorry, why he took a plea, the prosecutor did not get back to any reporters that were working on the case for Sarah, um, but the judge did say that it was probably because a second degree a case could not have been won. So his sentence for this particular incident was six years probation and the time he had already spent in jail. So basically for this one, he did not really receive any jail time because he would have already been serving at least some of it for the violation of probation from the previous case for the haunted forest. And, you know, was also looking at the five years um, for Caitlin's case. So there was this, you know, big overlap where you know, he violated the probation once, but he can only be sentenced to that. I'm sorry. He violated the probation twice, but he could only be sentenced for that violation once. So it was just the four and a half years as compared to, you know, any other charges that he could have received stemming from that because, you know, he took a plea and had no extra time to serve. Now, just a reminder, this was in 2001, but in 2002, an appeal on Caitlin Alley's case was won by the offender. And so while he had been sentenced to five years for the offense with Caitlin, as well as you know the previous 4.5 years from the haunted forest, he was not retried on Caitlin's case. The confession that the offender had given the police had been thrown out, saying it was unfair. Um, so the prosecutor did not think without that evidence that he could win the case. So he okayed a plea that would allow the offender to only serve time for the violation of probation. So when Caitlin Alley was asked about this, again, she just said, it just made me feel gross. I was scared. Now, remember, this is in 2002. He should be spending time in jail for a violation of probation. But going to just one year later, 2003, he was released early from jail and met a woman who became pregnant. In 2004, Patty Rothwell saw that an adult male was talking to her daughter and some of her friends on the porch. Patty had reviewed the sex offender registry and recognized him from it. 
stemming from his first offense. He made some statements to the girls that I'm not going to repeat, but he then smacked one of one on her backside. So Patty did call the police and he was charged with two SA offenses and one assault. He was acquitted. After what happened with Sarah Foxwell, Patty was very clear in her feelings about the young girl's fate, that if the offender had been in jail, this of course would have never happened. So there were failures in the system. Oh, and remember how he had met a woman and she became pregnant? On this same day on Patty Rothwell's porch, he had just brought home his newborn baby daughter from the hospital that same day. Now, when questioned as to why they did not convict, the foreman of the jury said that they did not know that he was a registered sex offender. The acts that the offender did commit on that day, they said could have been interpreted as more of innocent gestures, though, you know, again, as far as slapping a child on her behind, not entirely sure how that is innocent, but the only thing I can speculate about is that, you know, based on the events of the day that he was excited that, you know, his newborn baby was home and he was just like overly exuberant or overly hyped that they may have felt he was just kind of celebrating that. But if he was actually celebrating that, he should have been home with his girlfriend and the baby. Now, in the state of Maryland, previous convictions cannot be brought into evidence in most cases. A defense attorney state that their client then could not get a fair trial if any of these past events were introduced. Now, David Uren is a defense attorney and formal, former federal prosecutor. Um, you know, his thoughts were that the advocates of harsher sentences or harsher monitoring are on the right track if they want to hang every alleged sex offender, but they're on the wrong track if they want anyone to ever have a fair trial. So again, this is a defense attorney's thoughts, not mine. But he went on, or another attorney went on to say, just because somebody did it before, it doesn't mean they do it, did it again. Um, that defense attorney was Andrew Alperstein. Um, now, he has no connection to this case, but those were his thoughts based on, you know, allowing evidence of a prior conviction to be brought into a trial. Now, after this, Patty Rothwell did take out a restraining order against him. Her daughter is haunted by the events of what happened to Sarah, even though Patty's daughter was another victim of this same offender. Now, in 2006, the then governor, Martin O'Malley, his administration set forth some legislation to better monitor some sex offenders. He suggested longer monitoring times after release for certain offenders, as well as an advisory board to review how the state handled these offenders. But that never came into being. His administration said that some of the provisions were, quote, unworkable or unconstitutional. Now, these same suggestions were reintroduced um, after this case. 
there had been an advisory board that was set up previously, but they said it had not adequately addressed the situation on how to handle most sex offenders. And some of that was also my opinion regarding those regulations. Now, this offender had another run-in with the law in July of 2006. He was violent towards his now ex-wife. She did file a restraining order, and she really feared that he would come after her because he had threatened her. She has been afraid to speak with the media. In September of 2006, he broke into a woman's apartment in Ocean City, Maryland. He had met her while he was a bouncer at a bar. She had liked him as, you know, his persona was, you know, being cordial and fun um, she did let him come over to her apartment, but at some point he did become too aggressive and she told him he had to leave. So later on, they did run into each other and he apologized. And, you know, as we've gone over, he's very, very friendly. He's outgoing. And, you know, after the discussion and, you know, um, talking for a while, they even took a taxi together later that evening. Now, he did want to go to her apartment, but that was where she drew the line. She was firm that he was not doing that, so she did not let him in. But later that night, she woke up and found him in her bedroom in a state of undress. She was able to convince him to leave and saw that he had actually damaged a screen to get into the apartment. Now, this has affected her to this day and even impacts her sleep. Now, I'm just going to speak from a personal experience that I had where a man that I was alone with, um, not intentionally, it was just he worked um, for a different part of the company I was working with at the time, um, and this was over 20 years ago. And we just ended up being in the same place alone. And he did try to become aggressive. But thankfully, a um, co-worker from yet another part of the company needed some supplies from where I was. So you could hear the door slam when she came in. Um, so, you know, she wouldn't walk in and see us right away. But one, the slamming door was enough to make him move. But two, when she did see me, she knew something was wrong and she asked if I was okay. Um, you know, I did report the incident, but this particular person wore cowboy boots and a lot of where we worked had hard tile in it. And to this day, over 20 years later, when I hear like clicks or taps on hard tile of someone walking, Almost instantly, I go back to that moment. So this happened in this young woman's you know, sleep in her own apartment. So I just know personally how it felt to be you know, in that position and know how it still feels 20 years later. But she had someone break into her home. That's her sanctuary. That's where she goes to relax, to rest. And he's taken that away from her. So it's, you know, even though 
you know, time may pass, some things are just very, very difficult to, you know, erase from the memory. And things like this you don't erase. They stay with you forever. Now, for this case, he was charged with two misdemeanors. So he broke into a house, cut screen, or I'm sorry, an apartment, and he cut screens to do so. But I'm going to read this next sentence from, you know, just quoting it just to make sure I get all this, all the charges. So it was two misdemeanors, fourth degree burglary and malicious destruction of property. That's where it ended. Now, you know, I did state that he was in a state of undress, but he could not be charged with any type of SA offense as he was not completely undressed. So yeah, um, now this falls under a heading of attempted. You know, so you'll hear things like attempted, you know, um, let's just use some examples, attempted murder, attempted SA, things like that. You know, so I guess even if she had found him completely naked, there would have been you know, maybe um, attempted essay or something like that. But it just seems very, very strange that that's definitely, we know that's where he's going in his whole thought press process, that he wants to do that. But because she woke up, he doesn't get charged with it. Now, in 2009, this is where his next contact with the law comes in, and this is where we get to what happened to Sarah. Now, during the search for her, the family had noticed that Sarah's toothbrush was missing, and for what reasons, we don't know. But once the police were able to get a warrant to search his truck, um, they found the toothbrush. At this point, he had not even been off probation from Delaware for a year. When police ran his name, his extensive record appeared. And I can only imagine that all of those involved in the investigation had to know that the odds of finding Sarah alive were very low. In searching for the offender, they found him in a small shed on his family's property he was surrounded by, we'll just say, objectionable viewing material, but of course he denied everything. Now, this is Christmas time, yeah, as, as we've gone over. Now, the Eastern Shore usually does not get extremely, extremely cold, so nothing like you would see in Minnesota or Upper Michigan, things like that, but it still can get pretty cold. So around this time when, when Sarah went missing, that's one of the colder times of the year. And, you know, many communities, you know, just not in this area, but across the nation, when somebody needs help, the communities come together and they unite. So three days after Sarah had been missing, on Christmas Day, approximately 3,000 people gathered to help. There were so many people that the local baseball stadium, it's used for Triple A team, that had to be used as the staging area. So there were people on Christmas Day coming out just hoping that everything would turn out fine. 
there was hope still alive that she could possibly be found alive, that there might be some type of miracle. Now, I know watching these events, you know, I kept still thinking of my very young son. He had been less than three months old at the first Christmas, and the year that Sarah went missing, he was about 15 months old, and I was actually expecting my second child. And I was speechless at watching the TV, you know, just to see the backdrop of places I was so familiar with. It seemed like a horror was unfolding, but even though everybody knew that the odds of finding her alive were very low, you know, people still left their warm homes on Christmas Day. So as much as I, I had this feeling you know, of just fear and you know, hate to say it, hate against the person who took her, and that's a very strong word for me to say. But it also, you know, showed how people can come together. And, you know, that made me feel at least better about the overall community. And that this particular man was just one member of a community that came together. Now, some searchers actually came from around the country. There were people from the Dakotas or some people who've come with specially trained dogs to search for her. Now, um, what they did is the law enforcement actually used um, technology. They tracked his cell phone and it led to an area where the search could be narrowed down. And while she was located on Christmas Day, the miracle that everyone was hoping for was gone. Now, I'm going to give another warning. The next details can be very hard to, to really come to terms with. Um, I'm not going to give some explicit detail in some areas, but rather read from a description in regards to um, what one of the law enforcement officials described it as. But if you don't want to hear any of this, maybe skip about 15 seconds. So I will begin what the law enforcement official said right now. And before I start that, just to say there were a number of injuries that actually led to her death. And he said he attacked her. He tried to choke her, tied her up with her head in a mud puddle. Debris from the mud puddle was in her lungs. She was probably hypothermic, but she also had burns with smoke inhalation. She was alive during all of this. So while the actual specifics of what he did were kind of limited or vague in this description, it was enough to really say just how evil this man was. So he was indicted on first degree burglary and kidnapping. And once she was found, murder and sex offenses were charged as well. Now, he will spend the rest of his life in jail. The death penalty was taken off the table because he did plea or make a plea deal. Um, and the family and the prosecutors really decided to go with this plea deal because that way little Emma wouldn't have to testify. And they wanted to try to you know, think of what she would have to go through 
in order to you know re, or have to relive those moments that were terrifying for her. Now, he actually addressed the family during a hearing, and he said he was actually surprised that they agreed to allow the removal of the death penalty option. Now, what I'm going to do, because there is still a lot of information to go over about how this case impacted um, you know, monitoring and probation and other aspects to how sex offenders are you know, actually treated in regards to their release. So that can get a little bit detailed or a lot. Um, but what I'm going to do is give just a brief overview of some of the items we'll be going over in the next, um, the next episode, because it will be at least one other episode. I'm going to try to get the rest of the information in just one more episode instead of having a total of three. But these are some of the aspects we'll be exploring. There was, um, you know, as we previously mentioned, that there had been an initiative started in 2006 about how to take certain steps to monitor um, these offenders, but these efforts were revisited after Sarah's case. Now, I'm going to be reading directly from some of the articles, and so um, I'll let you know when I'm done reading directly from some information what would occur is a lifetime supervision for anyone convicted of SA or attempted SA, again, using some abbreviations there. Repeat offenders and those convicted of sexual abuse of a minor, among other offenses. That supervision, which could include GPS monitoring, would apply after any sentence or probation for the underlying crime. A pre-sentence investigation would occur a violation of that supervision would result in more prison time without early release for good behavior. Bringing the state into compliance with the Federal Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, also known as the Adam Walsh Act of 2006, by making registration requirements retroactive, reclassifying sex offense categories and requiring juveniles to publicly register as a sex offender if convicted as an adult, or if convicted of a serious offense in juvenile court and at least age 14. Giving judges authority to require sex offender registration for a person convicted of a child. And again, because of some requirements, you know, convicted of child PORN, possession or indecent exposure in the presence of a minor. Expanding the categories of people required to have state and federal background checks. It would include checks on private employees, running recreation centers, plus home health and residential agencies that provide services to minors. Okay, this is where that section ends. And honestly, that, that last one about expanding the categories of the people required um, to have background checks when running or being involved in certain things like recreation centers, I would have thought that would have been very, very strict. But, you know, again, looking at it through the lens of, you know, knowing what happened and that we're now 12 years, you know, past this almost, that 
you know, it's something we take for granted that these background checks should be run, but they were not always as extensive as they are now. So next episode, we'll kind of pick up on a few stats, um, go more into detail about what would be required under new legislation, as well as even you know, some information about people who were opposed to any additional legislation. So I will leave all of my contact information in the description of the episode. Again, this is, you know, falling into two different podcasts. So I'll have both of them listed in each of the notes. The mystifyingly missing one, I only have one other um, case on that. But you know, again, I'll put everything in the description. All of my sources will be in the description, and I will try to release the second episode as quickly as possible. Um, but again, it is really more of, you know, legislation and the aftermath of what happened to Sarah. Now, if you do want to listen to more of, you know, true crime on the Delmarva area or about disappearances, solved and unsolved, um, please subscribe to one or both of the podcasts, Mystifyingly Missing and Danger on Delmarva. That really helps the, the um, podcast grow because that affects the algorithm and how people find different podcasts, you know, when they're searching for certain keywords and things like that. Um, again, I do also upload to YouTube, so I'll leave those links in the description as well. Um, the video usually is either just a static video, meaning there's only one picture showing in the background, but I am looking at some software to try to um, you know, expand the video concept. So um, thank you all for sticking into this longer and very, very disturbing episode. And I just want to make sure that Sarah's memory stays alive and that you know, we can recognize what we need to do to try to better protect our children and, you know, also adults by keeping the um, sex offender registry open and having more legislation in regards to that. All right. So I will talk to everyone as soon as I can and have a great day.